This week on Flyover from NPR News, it's the hardest conversation in America, and it's time to stop avoiding it. I'm Carrie Miller. There are so many reasons not to talk about race. What if we say the wrong thing? What if we get labeled as something we just know we're not? What if being honest winds up hurting someone else? This hour, some advice for getting the conversation right. There's no way that you're going to know everybody's perspective. And so you're just coming from your own. And it would be really great if, in particular, my white brothers and sisters would not be so worried about their self-image that they weren't willing to be corrected. I want to hear from you. Call and tell us about a time you were corrected and it opened your eyes. Or tell us the part of your story that helps others understand race in a new way. Find us at 183-FLYOVER-1. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a show about who we are in turbulent times. If you followed along with us this fall, you know that we've been talking about American identity, and that means we can't shy away from some pretty uncomfortable subjects. I think our show on white resentment's a good example of that, and you can find it on the Flyover podcast. Today's show may also have some squirmy moments, but I really need your introspection and your candor here. Drop the words privilege and bias into a discussion about race and watch the hackles go up. Hey, we're human. No one wants to walk around shouldering a bunch of shame and blame. That said, isn't shame and blame an inevitable part of any candid conversation about color? Our guests are here today to say no. So how do you bring honesty and vulnerability into communication about race? And that means both talking and listening, and active listening. As we start the show, I'd like to hear from you on this. When was the last time, as an American of color, a white American for all of us, that you had an honest and enlightening interaction about race with someone of a different race, where you did as much listening as talking, how often do you find opportunities to talk about race with your kids? So I'd like to know if you've had this experience of having a conversation about race with someone of a different race that you walked away from saying, I learned something, I listened a lot, I really heard that discussion. Talk to me about that now, One eight three flyover one And I'd also be interested to know whether you talk about race comfortably with your kids. Talk to us about it on Twitter as well. It's at Carrie NPR and use the hashtag Flyover Radio. Again, the number 183 Flyover One. Verne Myers is with us today. She's an expert and consultant on diversity and inclusion. And she's the author of my go-to book on this called What If I Say the Wrong Thing? She's with us today from Baltimore. And Verne, I'm, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Great to be here, Carrie. Bridget Vitrup is with us. She's a psychologist who specializes in child development at Texas Women's University. And she's with us today from Denton, Texas. And Bridget, welcome to you. It's really good to have you on Flyover. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, Verne, I think your book title really says it all, and it's a good frame for our conversation today. Many of us think I'm better off not saying anything because if I'm quiet and inoffensive, then I haven't offended anybody. What's wrong with that? You know, I was talking to a woman who, right after the Charleston uh, massacre in the church happened several years ago, she said she went to work where she'd been working for about 16 years, and she walked in. She's a black woman, and she said not one person said anything to her all day wow. about this unbelievable thing. And so we were all talking and there was a woman, white woman there and she was brave enough and I'm going to underscore brave enough because there's some courage involved in these conversations. And she said, well, what if we said something to you and you thought you said it, we said it to you because you were black. <laughs> and, and the woman was like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> it's a national disaster. But but it was you know, it was it was real. It was real. The woman was afraid of saying something. So the reason why we cannot be quiet is that it makes us look like we don't care. It makes us unable to keep our connections with people who thought um, we were connected, at least around some very basic human things. Let me grab a call here from Joe in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
Joe, this sounds like an interesting experience you've had with this. Tell me your story. Well, um, I was a high school student. It was 1991, 92, and there was a real popular shirt that all the guys my age were wearing that was called Dixie Outfitters. And um, you'd find them at flea markets and country clothes stores and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, I had a couple of them, and I just didn't think nothing of it. It had a rebel flag on it. Uh-huh. And, um, my dad, I, you know, I'd come to around to him, and he saw the shirt, and he knew about him. And he said, son, I, I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't wear that around me anymore. Uh, you know, I, I didn't understand it at the time. I, um, he was a he was a union man, and this was a time of uh, divide in his union at the time. Uh, and he realized that the only way they were going to get things done in his job was to work with the black coworkers that he had. And, uh, he did some, you know, some, some uniting there, and they they got their president in. But anyway, it, he didn't like that shirt, and I, I could understand it. And um, and you know, of course, he died in '99. And I never really got a chance to tell him. You know, I threw that shirt away. I, he, um, and he, the, he was never. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joe. I was just going to say, and obviously, the experience made quite an impression on you because twenty something years later, this is what you go to yes. when you think about uh, an enlightening experience about race. If I may, Joe, I'd like to go back to our guests for their impression of that, Bridget. I mean, some of this, and I hear this in Joe's story here is being willing to be vulnerable to being corrected to maybe not knowing everything to being awkward i mean that's part i think of being willing to enter into an uncomfortable conversation about race and that's not comfortable for a lot of us right yes absolutely because i think that the reason so many people choose colorblindness is that it sounds like it's a good thing. And so we can kind of be silent about the issues and still feel we're doing something good because so many people do feel uncomfortable talking about issues related to race simply because they're not used to talking about it. Um, As you mentioned in the intro, they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid, especially white people um, are afraid of being labeled a racist. And so um, I think it's great when people take the opportunity to to discuss it and talk about it and and start a conversation. Vernay, what did you hear in what Joe told us? I was thinking, I love Joe's father. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when um, parents or anyone in positions of authority um, speak up and use that authority to tell people, remind people, alert people to the fact that something that they're doing that may be completely unintentional is nevertheless having an, a negative impact. And I, I think now what lots of parents have to do if they want to be part of the solution around um, sort of helping us with racial discord is that they've got to do some explaining to their kids. Um, Because sometimes if you don't have the information or the background or the facts or the history, um, you're just destined to repeat labels and stereotypes and so forth. You have no idea what you're doing. Bridget, I know this is something that you work on, parents with kids, and I know you've done some some studies and experiments with this. I think you say that very young children absorb ideas uh, that race is not to be discussed because of how awkward their parents are about it. Yes. And what we find is that as early as ages three and four, so already in preschool, um, children have absorbed a lot of messages about race and about the way that society is divided based on race. Um, And then if they start asking questions, oftentimes the response is either silence or diversion, where um, parents or other adults will talk about something else um, or kind of tell them, let's not talk about that. And so that sends this message um, to the kids, along with the fact that on a regular basis, parents don't sit down and discuss race with children, especially among white families. And so the children just pick up on the fact that this is something we shouldn't talk about. And then they start coming up with their own ideas about 
about that? Why are we not talking about that? And what is going on? What is wrong with these people that we can't talk about them? Yeah, so the awkwardness really starts young. To a listener, Jason, in Clinton, North Carolina. Hi, Jason. Tell me, tell me about your experience with this. Sounds like you're in the military, or you were. Uh, yes, ma'am. I served for eight years, uh, deployed to Iraq in 2009 and 10. And uh, I served with uh, African Americans. I served with Hispanics. Uh, we had a few Muslim interpreters that we dealt with on a constant basis. And the, we we would always play around and joke, and we would use race or races as jokes. Mm-hmm. And it, we weren't afraid to offend one another because we all knew one another's backgrounds. And I, I was just listening to her speak about the children having difficulties dealing with talking of race. My children are half white and half Native American. And I, I tell them openly, look, you need to be proud of your race. If someone asks you, you know, you need to tell them, yes, I'm half white. My father is white. My mother is Native American. Mm-hmm. Not not to have a closed mind to it. And, I mean, as, as coming up in rural North Carolina, race, you know, any rural part of the South, there's a big problem with race issues. Uh, Jason, um, because we're, we're a little tight on time here, I'm going to pick up on something you said at the beginning of that and go back to Vernay Myers on this. Vernay, I wondered when Jason was describing, you know, I'm serving with a lot of different people, including African-Americans, and race and jokes are one of the ways that we get comfortable with one another. And I thought, were there potentially people in that group where the jokes were going around who didn't feel totally comfortable in speaking up to say, this makes me feel uncomfortable? the way everybody else is talking about race, but but didn't feel like they could say anything about it. Well, you know, I have heard so many wonderful stories about folks in the military. And basically what they're talking about is if they developed a certain kind of cultural fluency, right? But you can't be culturally fluent. It's unlikely if you're not with the folks who have the different cultures. And so in the military, really, first of all, they have some very strong messages about respect. Um, And then they also are working together on common goals and they also start to learn each other's background. Therefore, they've got a lot of play and a lot of flexibility that the average person in in America who's worried about race does not have because they haven't become comfortable enough to go to the joke, to know what is a real joke and what's harmful. And also, I mean, young people like with my with my son, if you're with a person and they give you they say something that you find um, insulting, you say, hey, man, that's insulting. Don't do that again. It doesn't end. The world does not end because they have a certain kind of comfort and you don't get comfortable without first being uncomfortable. So to avoid is to always not be in a place to be comfortable. Ultimately, you're listening to Flyover on NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and we're talking about what it means to communicate openly and to listen actively in discussions about race. This is Flyover. Stay with us. I know not every public radio station can play our program live, but we do want to hear from you. Join our conversations on Twitter. Use the hashtag Flyover Radio. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover on NPR News. We're talking about what it means to communicate openly, to listen actively with some vulnerability in discussions about race. And I'm asking you to reflect on the last time you had that kind of an interaction with someone of a different race. Have you been afraid to talk to your kids about race? I want to hear from you today, 183-FLYOVER-1. And on Twitter, hashtag flyoverradio at CarrieMPR. Use that hashtag flyoverradio. Going right back to the phones here to Tanya in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Tanya. What's your experience with this? Thanks for calling. Hi. Uh, I'm a black American woman. I live here in Brooklyn. And the other night I was having a conversation with um, uh, two white male colleagues uh, about we were, we started to you know, talk about the 
legacy and history of racism in America. And they were asking me some questions and, you know, I would explain and occasionally I would say, interject, you know, you know, it's not your fault personally, you know, as an individual, you know, but this happened and this, you know, this is what we're dealing with today. And apparently I said it, it's not your fault more than once. And one of them was like, um, you know, I'm kind of offended that you keep saying it's not my fault. (laughs) I I thought I was sensitive. You know, I was trying to be sensitive because I thought that's one of the reasons people don't like talking about race. They feel like they're being blamed, you know. And so I thought I was being, but that was an eye-opening correction for me. Okay, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. So, So they were offended that you were saying it's not your fault, but we live in... We live in a country with a with a complicated legacy of race. But you're saying to your white colleagues, it's not your fault. And that's the thing that they didn't like, that they felt offended about. I, I guess I was. Well, that was that's the thing that there, there was a whole lot of things that we were each offended on both sides. But that stood out to me because apparently I was over correcting. <laughs> Um, and huh. I was trying to make them feel comfortable, and maybe I overdid it because, you know, we have all inherited it, and we all perpetuate racism. So some things are our fault. So when I was, when I was talking about the historic stuff, I was just saying, I know you individually, you know, didn't time travel and do that. But yeah. we have all, uh, and just trying to make, you know, but let's, let's talk about it because it did happen. And you don't have to feel personally responsible. That was my point. But he was like, you don't have to keep saying it's not my fault. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Oh, Tanya, I'm so glad you called because this is exactly the kind of conversation I wanted Bridget and Vernay to dig into. Like, what was going on there? Bridget, what's your initial impression of what happened there? I mean, I think it's interesting that, first of all, you know, you you see this a lot of times, like as a black person, she is feeling that she has to sort of make them feel better, like, I'm not attacking you, I'm not blaming you, and then for them to come back and say that that's offensive, because it it sort of dawned on me that maybe at some level they're still feeling the blame, even though she keeps saying that, because it's uncomfortable for them to get this um, brought up. And there is this saying also that um, we may not have polluted the environment, but we're still all responsible for cleaning it up. So yes, you may not have been responsible for what happened back then, but a lot of the things that we saw 50 years ago are still around some of the, the racial oppression and the social inequalities. And so I think it's great that they're having this conversation. Um, and I and I think it's really interesting seeing the racial dynamics there in terms of what the white individuals are being offended I know, by. I know. Yeah, but Vernay, I really applaud Tanya for being in the game, right, and willing to have the discussion. What do you hear in, in what happened there? And do you think she's right when she says, I think I overcorrected? What, what's your take on that? Well, here's the thing. And when you're in these conversations, you have nowhere you have no way of knowing where people are coming from. So one of the things that I think, first of all, we should just stop thinking it's going to be like the perfect conversation. Everybody's going to be so happy. We're going to figure it all out. It's going to be, yeah, there's a perfect word. You know, you know, it's not going to be like that for a very long time. So um, if you have some some tension in a conversation but and you still manage to keep talking in, you feel like you learn you learned something maybe the other person did too that's a good conversation if we are looking for situations where nobody feels insulted or offended or whatever it's unlikely that we're going to keep moving into the depth of these conversations that we need to so maybe she overcorrected maybe it was um oversensitive for this person to say something about being offended but the point is if they kept talking in some way and they learned something from each other like Maybe they're ready now for even another conversation or another level of the conversation. That's how I think about it. You know, this whole like we need to have something tidy is what I think is preventing us from going deeper. Roscoe says on Twitter, hi, Carrie, my question is, why is it the responsibility of black people to teach white folks about race? When will they go out and learn more about how to interact with black folks and other people of color? Vernay, I think we talked about this the last time. You and I had a conversation on this. Yeah. How, how, what to say to that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I hear what the caller is saying because I sort of feel that people say, why are we always, why can't we just stop talking about race? Why do we have to bring it up? And it's, and I often say, well, because folks are not doing their work. And when I say folks, I do mean in many cases it's the group that doesn't need to do that work to survive every day. And that's the majority group. Often um, you can be a white person and live in America and never actually have to think about race, depending on what community you live in or what your friend circle is or so forth. So there's a lot of um, lack of competency in the area. And really, Black people have been carrying the burden and Asian folks and and all folks of color on learning people, uh, updating people, teaching them. And I think it really does help if we have a mutual effort, which means that uh, and some white folks are doing it. They're meeting with other white people. They're reading things. They're paying attention to uh, things they haven't done before. And that makes a huge difference. You know, Bridget, I, I want to bring your own personal, your family experience into this. You're white. Your husband is black. And I'm interested in when you two were dating and newly married, whether or maybe this still happens, whether acquaintances of yours, maybe even close friends, struggled with how to talk to you about the two of you. D- did that happen? Does it still happen? Well, it's interesting because I think it probably did. I just maybe wasn't aware of it. There wasn't anything overtly said, but certainly what was interesting is what I really started noticing is the conversations that took place when he wasn't in the room versus when <laughs> really? he was. Okay, like what? Uh, and and it's been the same thing. Even um, I mean, the neighborhood that we live in is somewhat diverse, um, but we've hung out at you know, various neighborhood gatherings. And uh, we have two kids. And so sometimes, you know, if the kids are tired, one of us will go home. And so what I've noticed is when I've been there, there have been conversations where people are okay. If it's mainly white people, um, they're okay having conversations related to race. And there is complete silence about the issue if my husband is there. So it's almost like just adding that one token minority person just makes people so uncomfortable. And Bridget, if, if you were going to if you were going to address that straight on, what would you say to the friends who don't want to bring that up when your husband's around? Well, a lot of times, this is what I tell parents, too. um, Just in my research, parents who are so uncomfortable talking about it um, with their children or even with anybody, because we see it with adults, too. People just are very uncomfortable um, talking about it because they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And just like Vernay said, yeah, you're not always going to get it right, and and that's okay. Um, But... It's still what I try to point out is, you know, whether it's race or religion or sexual orientation or any of these topics that people feel uncomfortable talking about in in a group of people, uh, these are not like diseases or federal offenses um, or any kind of classified information. It's okay to talk about it. And we do have to talk about it. I think a lot of times people are well intended when they take more of a colorblind um ideology and and not wanting to talk about it. But the problem is that that tends to just sort of preserve the status quo and this symbolic and and institutional dimensions of oppression because we're not forcing people to acknowledge that there are issues of prejudice and and discrimination. And so I always encourage people to say, it's okay to talk about it. And like my husband always says, I know I'm black. Like it, it doesn't offend me if you mention that I'm black. And and so I think that a lot of times people have just become so afraid to talk about it because they're so afraid that they're going to offend somebody or be labeled a, a racist. But uh, by doing that, we're almost making it this disease Absolutely. that we can't talk about. You're listening to Flyover. If you've just just gotten into the conversation, we're having the conversation a lot of people don't want to have. And you can hear our guests talking about it and some of our listeners that as well. It's It's about race. And I'm asking whether you have recently had an experience where you had an interaction with someone of a different race where you actively listened and you participated with a certain amount of vulnerability. I mean, our guests are saying, yes, you might say the wrong thing or you might step in very tentatively, but having the discussion is so important that it's worth your feeling a bit awkward at the beginning. Have you had that discussion? Are you not sure how to start it? 
What do you say about this with your kids? Because a lot of people don't talk very openly with their kids about race. One eight three flyover one. You can talk to me about it on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR hashtag flyover radio. Vernay Myers is with us. She's the author of What If I Say the Wrong Thing? Perfect for what we're talking about today. And Bridget Vitrup is with us. She's a psychologist who specializes in child development at Texas Women's University. Vernay, I'm hearing from Nick, who is saying, help me. He says, I work at a church where the youth are very racially diverse, while the adult members are homogenous in North Minneapolis. And he says, bridging generations is very difficult. Help me out! Exclamation point. What, what can you say to him? One of the things I think helps if you're trying to bridge difference is to actually set up a conversation and to give everybody the same question. And this whole point you're talking about of listening and speaking, I would say listening more than speaking is what makes a conversation like this works work. But one of the things that we do often is we have, um, you know, one person talk for two minutes, their answer to a question. Mm. Uh, and, and the other person has to listen without interruption. And then we switch it. And the second person begins to give their um, their story or their answer to the question. And then afterwards, you get to discuss it as a group. What this does is it allows people to listen and just focus on what a person is saying. And undoubtedly, when you're not trying to go back and forth, when you're not trying to defend yourself, you actually grasp something that is very valuable to your understanding and your exp- the expanding of your understanding. And so this gives, like, especially generations, races, you name it, it gives them equal footing in the conversation. That's the other issue. Yeah, Renee, because if you have a group that's better than or knows more, then right. it, it's hard to go back and forth. I, I was going to say, one of the things that you recommend is not pushing your own bias away when it comes up, you know, not scolding yourself to, to have awareness around it and be willing to examine it. That's hard. I think that's a tall order for a lot of us. Well, all of this is a tall order. That's why it hasn't happened quite yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but some introspection and I think courage. And I say courage, but I, really all I'm saying is believe that you can survive a conversation like this and live to the next one. Like there is we're not going to die. We're not going to just as Bridget said, we're going to learn by doing. And if we are willing to be curious, to listen and not try to be right there's a lot of distance we can cover. All right. Back to the phones, because we have uh, so many people that want to get in on this, to Rick in Raleigh, North Carolina. Rick, how are you coming at this? Hi. So um, so for me, I have Asian-American nephews, African-American niece and nephew. I have a gay son, two out of three gay sisters, and an intersex daughter. So ver- diversity is very personal to me. Uh-huh. And I speak about cultural fluency in the workplace in the context of a management class that I teach at a local community college where 70% of my class is minority. And as we go through the human resources part of the course and we talk about diversity, it becomes very specific. And I sometimes will close the door so that we can have a more honest conversation. And we bring up we talk about my own racially homogenous and, and ignorant background and ancestry, and, and, and we bring up their experiences as minorities and how we all stereotype on some level. Mm-hmm. Even, even within racial minorities, we find that there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of disdain for, you know, I'll be specific, in the Latin American community, um, one, of the, one of the women in my class um, has her parents own a house cleaning business and their employees are all Latin American women and very diverse Latin American women. So, you you know, you know, um, you don't, you don't call what you don't call a woman with a Mexican heritage or a Guatemalan heritage Mexican. Yeah. So that creates real tension in that environment. And we, we bring those out in class and we talk about them pretty, pretty specifically in very um, in very broad terms, and we talk about how they're applicable in all conversations. Is it hard, Rick, to get the discussion going where people are are really willing to be real with you? 
Well, I start I start with my own background, right? So my my ancestors were Irish, English, and German immigrants. So I'm about as white as the driven snow. Mm-hmm. And we talk about we talk about my um, racially ignorant background, where you know when I was a kid, I'd walk into my grandmother's house, and when I'd go to get a book to read, it was Little Black Sambo, mm-hmm. and their dog's name was Sambo, and he was a black cocker spaniel. And from my grandmother on my other side of the family, I learned from her how to use the word Jew as a verb. Wow. And, and, and these things didn't really impact me until I was much, much older. I was sitting with a Jewish friend once talking about my success at a recent garage sale. And I, and I told him, you know, I really like to go out there and Jew people down. And he, he looked at me and he, and I had no, I, I thought it was a French verb, right? And it was spelled J-O-U-E-U or something <laughs> like that. Oh, wow. And he looks at me and he goes, really, Rick? <laughs> Jew them down? And, it was, it, and I was like 35 years old. And it was at that point that I, I, I really understood how completely ignorant I was and insensitive to the issues that um, the diverse population faces on a regular basis. And, of course, you know, with my sisters and my nieces and nephews, we talk about the issues that they face all the time. My daughter when she went to college, one of the one of her first experiences was um, she went to a party with some African American friends, and it was an all African American party. So in order to fit in, she went in and you know used the N word to greet everybody. <laughs> oh gosh! Uh, wow, Rick, you've given us a lot to chew over. Thank you so much for the call. You're listening to Flyover on NPR News. I'm Carrie Miller. It's a conversation about what it means to communicate openly and yes, sometimes awkwardly, but also to listen actively in discussions about race. Bridget Vitrup is with us from Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas, and Verne Myers is with us from Baltimore, Maryland. She's the author of What If I Say the Wrong Thing? A lot of what we're talking about this hour is in that book. I want to hear from you. Have you had a conversation where you let yourself be vulnerable about race, where you admitted you didn't know how to start that discussion. Talk to me today about it, 183-FLYOVER1, hashtag Flyover Radio on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Stay with us. Discussion continues. If you appreciate hearing voices from across flyover country, check out some of our past episodes at flyoverradio.org or on our podcast. We've talked about guns and religion, health care, and whether it's still possible to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're listening to Flyover from NPR News. Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from NPR News. We're based right here in St. Paul, Minnesota. We're having a conversation about how to have a conversation about race. And I'm suggesting, you know, you drop the words privilege and bias into a discussion about race. Yeah, the hackles go up. This doesn't have to be about shame and blame, but it can be about candor and vulnerability. And our guests today are talking about how to manage that. And I want to go right back to the phones here to uh, Bridget in North Carolina. Bridget, you want to know about how to talk to your kids about race. Luckily, we have another Bridget who's just the perfect expert for that. So so what is it you want to know? Well, as we've had some discussions of, amongst uh, myself and my children recently and about several of the issues that have gone on in the media. And one that actually came up recently um, with Charlottesville and the issue of explaining white power and and essentially black power mm-hmm. and where one is a dominance issue and where one is, uh, you know, just equality. And so you're saying what to say to your kids about that? Absolutely. Okay. And so I don't have bias, so I don't have some kind of way of leaning in on one versus the other. And also so that my children who are essentially white uh, don't essentially hate completely a group of people uh, for the rest of their lives uh, and, and to, to instead show some sort of empathy in the sense that 
they need help Good. <laughs> and they need to learn better. Good. Uh, Bridget Vitrup, what would you say? Well, I think it's it's interesting um, the way that parents kind of have these um, – they're uncomfortable with this particular topic. And I understand that it depends on how old the children are. And some people are very um, uncomfortable because they're afraid that they're going to all of a sudden open their kids' eyes to something that they were not aware of before. But the kids are exposed to so many messages um, about bias and about people who are different from them. And so I, I always say, first of all, say something. Don't be silent about the issues. And I also think that we shouldn't be afraid to say that what these people, for example, in Charlottesville, these white people, what they did was wrong. And I think we do have to point that out. Um, and it's not about making the kids feel feel bad and, and feel bad about their own race, but it is about making them understand that there are people that sometimes do things and say things that are inappropriate, and it makes other people um, feel bad and Young children, so it, it depends on the age of the child, but I think we always have to be honest and factual. Um, young children do understand concepts of fairness and of being nice. So if we're talking about inequality, they understand if you talk about, you know, some people are not given the same opportunity, some people don't have uh, as much as others, um, and also just this whole concept of being nice to others. And then with older children, they do understand more complex concepts about stereotypes, prejudice, and, and discrimination. And if we don't talk about it, they're going to try and figure it out on their own. And so silence about it is a big message, essentially. Um, and, and sometimes we'll send this message that some people are unimportant or inequality is okay. And so I think it's okay to be very honest and factual about what happened, um, whether it be um, Charlottesville or when we see um, police brutality. Um, because anytime you turn on the TV, these days, there's news 24-7. Kids are exposed to it. They hear it at school. Um, even after the presidential election, there were lots and lots of talks. And, and teachers all of a sudden grasping at straws, trying to figure out how to answer the children's questions. And, and again, I think it's important that we have the conversation and Yes, you might not always have the the right answer and or you might say something and afterwards you thought that might not have been the right thing to say, but to really just dig into the conversation because what that message sends to the children is that it's okay to ask these questions and and there's a safe place to talk about them. It, it just seems and this is kind of where we started when somebody called to talk about Charlottesville. It it just defies logic. That when these kinds of things are happening around us and we're seeing the images in the news that you would not – you want to be able to have – to truly listen and to have conversations about, as Bridget is saying, police brutality and the marches in Charlottesville and the things that are said in the political arena. Let me grab a call here from Colleen in St. Louis. Uh, Colleen, it, it sounds like you've also had some experience with this. Uh, yes, I was calling to share an experience. I'm a local nurse in a hospital here in St. Louis, and I uh, was discussing uh, Michael Brown's shooting with the other nurses in our nurses' station Yeah. when a uh, patient's husband, who was a black man, came walking by, and he heard our conversation, and he actually walked past us at first and then turned around and came back. And we all sat and we talked for a good hour about Michael Brown and racism and just uh, covering multiple topics. And uh, that's a, it's a rare thing in St. Louis. St. Louis is a very segregated city. And um, I feel like I don't have a lot of opportunity to have open conversations with people of other races about racism. It just, it doesn't come up very often. The, the opportunity doesn't come up all that often. You know, um, Colleen, it's interesting that he heard you walked by and decided for right, for the right reason to turn around. Mm -hmm. And then the hour long mm -hmm. discussion. Vernay, what do you hear in the story? 
Um, I'm just grateful to hear that that kind of interaction is happening. I think that people do shy away from especially things that are on the news or political things. This police violence, I actually had um, a white woman tell me that she was working with uh, a black man during uh, sort of the height of uh, one one week. We had like three shootings last year. And she said... She didn't know what to say. She wanted to say something. So she did something that I'm just going to recommend to people when they don't know what to say. She said, I don't know what to say, but I feel like I have to say something and I could get it wrong. But if I do, you'll let me know, right? I am so devastated by what's happening and I want to know how you're doing. Wow. Yeah. Basic. Perfect. Perfect. And she said, he said, thank you for asking me. And, you know, he could have been a different black guy. He could have been like, I want to talk about it, you know, but the point and then sometimes people get offended by that. But it's like, look, your job, your job, if you want to bridge this gap is to find to be active, find some way to do it. You don't have to be perfect at it, but you broach the subject. And often right there in that interaction, there's going to be a lot of information. There are going to be cues, including I want to talk about it to, oh, I would love to hear more. So so, you know, you just have to practice and you have to approach Vernay, I want to ask you about an argument that I think comes out of the political arena, but ends up ends up being confusing in interaction between average Americans. And it, it is, well, that's not really about race. That's about class, because white people are poor, too, and white people suffer housing discrimination in some places. And sometimes white people end up in prison when they shouldn't. And so that just goes to show that it's not about race. What's the right answer? What What's the right conversation uh, follow up to that? Depends on how tired you are. Right? Yeah. Because, because um, and what mood you're in, because a lot of what people are saying, find what you can agree with. Right. Okay. So is class an issue? Absolutely. Should it be discussed more? Sure. Are some white people poor? Yes. But still, if we compare incomes 20 times, I think it's 20 percent more or something of the the most impoverished white person is making a, 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 the, so much more money than the average poor black person. So race and class are correlated. That's a positive. That's true. That's things that you can talk about. But it doesn't I don't think we need to resist the truths um, in order to make another point. So let's let's be complex. Let's say, okay, that's great. Now, do you notice some things that might be additional barriers for black poor people or for women of color? Right. So this whole idea of intersectionality becomes part of the conversation. One of the things that I think is really important is that we haven't learned to have these complex um, kind of conversations where you have identities on top of identities Mm -hmm. making for different outcomes. So I don't think you have to deny in order to also give people a chance to consider the the various dimensions um, and the way in which really race often compounds barriers and um, and I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have. I think we've construed things as either or. It's not either or. It can be really both and. Nick called from Tempe, Arizona, to say that he'd read a recent study that said 75 percent of white people don't have a non-white friend. I, I don't know about those numbers. That was that was his quote. But I have read research that says most of us live in very segregated communities go to segregated churches. We're not going to have much interaction with people, perhaps at work, hopefully. So Nick adds to this, Bridget, how can we have the important conversations if most of our interactions through the day, uh, particularly for white people, are with other white people? What do you think? Right. And and he's absolutely right. If we look at um, the United States now, neighborhoods are actually more segregated now than they were back in the 50s and 60s. And so what happens is that, you know, like he said, people are in these homogenous environments where they don't have really access to others. And I've talked to parents, too, um, who will say, well, it's not that I don't want to have a 
black friend or a Hispanic friend or an Asian friend. And it's not like I don't want my children um, to play with kids that look different, but I, I don't know how to go about it. I don't want to just go up to, you know, the one black person at my work and say, hey, do you want to be my friend? You know, I mean, these things <laughs> right. do have to happen organically. But there are a lot of things that you can do because you can start having those conversations. And if you live in very homogenous environments, um, I always say, don't wait for your kids to bring up conversations, because then the conversation may never happen. Because if it's not something that's salient to them, and especially among whites um, in America, race is not something that's really salient to us, because we're not constantly being reminded of our race and being treated in a certain way based on our race. Uh, but I think that the onus is on us to to talk to our kids um, and really make them aware of, of experience of other people. And so there's a lot of things that you can do. So there's a lot of books, um, a lot of great um, multicultural books. And, and I usually recommend don't just sit there and read them because sometimes even though they are promoted as being um, kind of diverse and multicultural, it's not always as as obvious or as intentional, um, but but really start bringing up conversations. Talk to the kids and kind of state the facts. You know, there are people who are, who are treated differently because of their way, uh, because of the color of their skin. There are uh, people that have certain ideas about minority groups and talk to the kids and say, "What do you think about that? Um, what would you say if you?" saw something or heard something. Um, there are videos you can use as conversation starters. Um, there are a couple of really good pen pal networks um, where they're actually, like, they're screening people, making sure these actually are uh, kids or young people and, and not, um, you know, trolls. And, and so they're screening them and they get, you know, paired with somebody who lives in another country, for example, somebody from a different culture and um, so with these pen pal networks and certain social media sites where kids can interact, perhaps virtually, but nonetheless interact with people who are different from them and, and start having conversations like that. And, and even with you, you turn on the TV and you watch the news, there is plenty of stuff to discuss just, just watching what's on the news. Wow, so for sure. Uh, call here from Kim in Freehold, New, Jer New Jersey. Kim, I know it's been a while. Thank you so much for waiting. But tell me your story oh, you're on this. Hi. Well, I, I just wanted to say that um, I have the few uh, opportunities I've had to speak to black people. I end up backing down and not saying what I want to say because um, I feel that um, what I, what, what I want to say to them is that as a white person who is a Republican, that um, I feel that there are um, many, many of us that are misunderstood and assumptions are made about us mm -hmm. that aren't true. And while I totally, I mean, I acknowledge the problem, I understand that, that racism is real and it exists. What I want to say is there are a lot of us out there who you may think don't understand. And of course, we can't. We haven't walked in your shoes. So I get that. But that we care. We see what happens in the inner cities. We see um, the problems uh, that that people of color have. But but we care and we may have a different view on how some of it needs to be um, fixed. We may we on the political side may be on the right. You're on the left. But it doesn't mean that we don't care and we don't want to see positive changes in yeah. race relations. In I mean, country. Kim, what and I feel I, like because I'm a Republican, yes, I can't exactly. Say that. Well, I, I think what's interesting about this is you're saying I sense stereotypes about me and I want to figure out how to address that. So, Vernay, how to begin? Well, I want to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, everybody has stereotypes. And I definitely think that there is a rushing to judgment for all around. There's there's more. I, I can't be saying we need to take the judgment down and the compassion up because um, that's the only way we're going to be open enough to hear what 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 we believe we're trying to say and where we can find some uh, community or some connection, something to build a better understanding on. So here's the thing. I could still disagree with you and still think 
that you're deserving of respect. I can still want to hear what you have to say. I could still learn from you. We can ultimately, at the end of this conversation, we still may not agree. But if we could stop going for like agreement as the objective, I think what we need to do is to at least first get a chance to just see each other as human beings, talk, find out, then we may learn. But the thing is, is that people have to want to learn and they have to want to be wrong. And a lot of times I find people go into conversations, they want to be right. <laughs> and and uh-huh. so if if you're not willing to be wrong, if you're not willing to hear something that you didn't know that is kind of devastating and dis- destabilizing because it rocks your worldview, then it's unlikely that we will be able to come to some kind of useful community around these issues. And so, um, I mean, that's the thing that I want to say. And I hear I hear the stereotypes run both ways. And by by the way, we're, we're clumping people of color. You know, we've we've got a whole lot of f- different groups within uh, the people of color umbrella, and there are biases running between and across those groups as well, and a lack of exposure and a lack of understanding, a lack of history. There are so many things I don't know about other racial groups, and so I'm trying to approach white folks the way I want to be approached when I'm ignorant. When I don't know everything, I'm I'm trying to give um, some opening and some understanding and some forgiveness so that maybe there's a possibility for authenticity. Vernay Meyer's book is called What If I Say the Wrong Thing, which is what this whole conversation was about. Vernay, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bridget Vitrup with us, Associate Professor of Child Development at Texas Women's University. And Bridget, thanks again. I hope we have another opportunity to talk. Really great to have you here. You're welcome. I hope so, too. Flyover is produced by Marquita Fornoff, Suzanne Pico, Elizabeth Shockman, and Jeff Jones. Our technical director is Veronica Rodriguez. Joffrey Wilson composed our theme music. Special thanks this week to Chrissy Pease. We'll be back next week with one last episode of Flyover for this season. I'll see you then. <laughs>